ہیںڈن Um, we have, as is the norm, two topics um, for you. So the first topic uh, that we shall begin to discuss um, at around 7.30 a.m. Um, or so is, um, uh, is about um, the increasing trend of uh, vaping among the teenage population uh, in this country. And um, uh, there is certainly opinion that it is better than smoking. So we shall go... into a bit of a discussion on that and look at the Islamic perspective as to uh, is smoking something which is um, which is uh, recommended in Islam or not. So we should look uh, at that angle as well. And then uh, from about um, 8-10 a.m. onwards, we shall look at the effects of uh, Alzheimer on the language centers of the brain. So we shall look at a bit of the... scientific research um, on around that as well so those are the two topics of the day uh, please do join us in uh, these discussions uh, by calling us at 02086877878 this is a live show so we would really uh, like you all to participate um, uh, so please uh, do call us at this number you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk Right, so I shall start with the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. So the Prime Minister is to delay the vote on removing the 45% tax rate following a growing re- rebellion among Tory MPs against the proposal. This is according to the Daily Telegraph. According to the paper, which cites government sources, Liz Truss will not ask MPs to approve the tax cut until they have seen how it will be funded in the Chancellor's medium-term plan. on 23rd November. The measure was outlined last Friday's mini-budget, which sparked market turmoil and saw the value of the pound plummet. The Metro leads on former Cabinet Minister Michael Gove's criticism of the mini-budget. The former levelling-up secretary called the mini-budget non-conservative and criticised a number of mistakes in mistrust's plan to grow the economy by increasing the amount of borrowing. Mr. Gove is joined by his former cabinet colleague, Grant Shapps, in criticizing the Prime Minister's tax-cutting plans, writing in The Times, the former Transport Secretary said, the government should not be making big giveaways to those who need them least. Reflecting the wider anger from within the conservative ranks, the eye opts for the headline, Tory rebellion builds against defiant Prime Minister. The paper reports that mistrust faces a growing revolt with rebel MPs believing they can force the government into a U-turn on its 45% tax cut plans. It comes after Labour surge in the polls following the mini-budget. Striking a similar tone, The Guardian says some MPs are threatening an all-out rebellion and fears the Tories could become known against... Uh, It could become known again as the nasty party. Despite the Prime Minister displaying a, sil- a sliver of remorse for the way the mini-budget was received, her Chancellor remains defiant. The paper says that the that Kwasi Korteng will pledge on Monday to stay the course with what he calls a sound and credible plan. 
but the Daily Mail focuses instead on what it calls a conservative backlash against Mr. Gove's savaging of the mini-budget. The paper says that Mr. Gove used a series of appearances at the party conference to stoke anger towards the government's plan to abolish the 45% top tax rate. Isn't getting rid of one prime minister enough for him? The paper quotes one senior conservative as saying... Truss's finish is the headline of the front of the Daily Mirror, which quotes a former cabinet minister's damning verdict on the new leadership's premiership. Uh, on the on the new leader's premiership, Ms. Truss will be ousted by Christmas unless she abolishes her planned tax cuts for the wealthy. The source tells the paper. Um, and it's clearly mentioned in the newspaper. The Daily Express's lead story is on Mr. Quarteng's vow to stay the course with his economic plan. The paper reports that the Chancellor will tell the Conservative Party conference on Monday that the government has an ironclad commitment to fiscal discipline in an attempt to draw a line under market turmoil of the past week. And finally, Quarteng to defy mounting Tory rebellion with def- with defence of tax cut uh, tax cuts is the Financial Times take on the same story. Several Conservative MPs have told the paper they would not support the Prime Minister's economic plan, and that would be defeated in the House of Commons unless there was a government U-turn. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you, um, Imam Shahzeb Atha. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. So. Would you agree that the um, uh, that the government has an ironclad commitment to fiscal discipline, given what we've been hearing? I think I think the new announcement um, by the Chancellor on the mini budget has had repercussions of such a nature which perhaps nobody had expected, or at least you know the cabinet didn't expect, and they're now in no man's land. They don't know whether to take U-turns or whether to sort of continue with the path that they've, um, you know, led literally on and um, because they don't want to seem politically weak. Um, But on the other hand, you know, we've seen the pound drop. We've seen question marks over the economy. um, And it's sort of a which, which path do you tread upon? So that's why I think they have been somewhat um, bound to this U-turn because of the the budget which they have announced, and I was just funny enough just reading on um, an article by the BBC reporting on the ramifications of you know the mini budget, and one such ramification was on the interest rates um, that the lenders are providing, the mortgage lenders. There was a lady who said she initially had an offer of four point five on her mortgage, and the bank came back to her. Um, and saying that we can't offer that 4.5 anymore, we're going to offer you a 10.5 interest rate, which is completely unaffordable for, and especially because she was a first-time buyer. So, under the pressure of um, you know the people that the government are serving, and indeed the way that the economy is, because of the various external factors, Brexit and Ukraine and what have you, you know, I think they'll have to have this unit at least you know the, the scrapping of the 45p rate of income tax um and it does show some political instability by Liz trust you know the question marks are now being raised or at least you know there are question marks about her leadership um you know some people even going to the extent of um you know somewhat m- mocking her name saying in Liz 
trust do we, do we trust Liz Truss or you know, that sort of um, angle has been taken but nonetheless you know it's uh, that's a very tabloid uh, yeah it's <laughs> very tabloid um, sort of style of projecting her right. leadership um, uh, mind you the plan to scrap the 45p rate was to be paid by people earning over 150,000 a year mm. and you know it's been criticised at an unfair time because of the you know it is, of the, it, the optics of it is pretty bad wouldn't you agree I think it is I mean I mean I, I, I get the uh, the fact that it's it's uh, it's for uh, it's for people earning 150,000 mm. and they're not um, uh, acute they're not millions of them let me yeah. put it that way I also get the fact that um, uh, the uh, that the impact um, might not be that much as well as far as uh, the tax collection numbers go. That's according again to the uh, to the chart to, uh, to the chancellor. Uh, so I'm, I'm quoting him there. Uh, but uh, you know, from an optics standpoint, when people are struggling to, when people are having to make a choice between heating and eating and whatnot, inflation numbers so high. Yeah. Um, there's a huge amount of struggle in the society. The, I mean, does it not? look bad for the government to do such a thing? I think in hindsight that's why they say hindsight is a blessing um, mm. in, in hindsight perhaps you know wasn't what they were thinking and but it, but isn't it what you're supposed to think I mean if you're in government you are you are <laughs> you're supposed to think ahead <laughs> you and, are, th- and think through <laughs> exactly um, I guess the options were limited I mean what, what can be said really they probably thought it would never turn out to be the way that it has and you know mm. For us, you know, we could have seen this, but you know, God knows what lens they were looking at, uh, looking at it through. But um, now it's, you know, it's it, the questions will be raised. I think the questions are being raised. Mm. Um, you know, yes. Labour certainly asking questions over, mm. you know, Liz Truss's um, ability to run the country. Well, the Conservative colleagues, are exactly. Good. There's so many um, members within the party, sure. you know, the Conservative Party, that are asking the questions. Mm. Um, so. I mean, dare I say, I think there is a general election coming soon, from what I can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only time will tell, you sure. know, right. where the country is headed. And mind you, you know, these tax U-turns um, are only coming into place because of the various other, you know, uh, economic r- ramifications that we are finding. And just recently, I think everybody would be aware of the fact that the Nord Stream 1 pipeline has been uh, turned off because of supposed leaks um, which supplies a great amount of gas to Europe I think 40% goes to Germany perhaps yeah um, which will you know definitely hit home to say the least um, and, and, and there's been a bit of a speculation about who's actually uh, mm, made those leaks as well yes um, it's speculation some say f- um, you know concrete fact um, <laughs> yes but it, either way you know that's going to be a tough winter for some countries um, yeah. and perhaps you know even for the UK sure right yeah absolutely I think uh, yeah there's a, I think it's a, a difficult uh, winter looming I think what will happen is it's who breaks first um, either because we all know you know that pipeline has been served from Russia um, one of the um, um, sort of states near the edge of the I think the Atlantic Sea is where the um, pipeline to run through but um, it's about either we continue to support this war in Ukraine or we put the people's welfare uh, first 
Um, so this is, I think, what and Putin certainly knows, you know, that him or at least Russia cutting off that pipeline will put Europe into a conundrum um, as to what they do and where they move towards. I mean, didn't they always uh, say in the, in in the world of um, uh, uh, diplomats that diplomacy is is yeah. is usually is is the best solution? And at the end of the day, it's uh, uh, you know the only solution really is to sit down and talk. And it uh, is yeah. Talk I mean, about issues. War is never a solution. And exactly, war has never led to any positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this, you know, across the Middle East, parts in Africa. War has never led to any positive outcome. Diplomacy is only the best policy, really. Um, and without diplomacy, you know, we will find uncertainty and political instability and all sorts of carnage, which, you know, is rampant across the world as we currently speak. There isn't one war happening right now. There's various wars. There's various civil wars. Mm. And only through diplomacy can there truly be a solution. And hopefully... You know, by the end of this year, there is that solution available. Otherwise, you know, it will be um, be very sad to see this even being stretched out for for the period that it already has been stretched out. Well, otherwise, I think if you if you just look at uh, what the head of the the current head of the Muslim mm. community, that Mr. Masood Ahmed, has been saying, well, um, I think catastrophic is this is the word there. Otherwise, I think uh, mm. one of the words that he's actually used is unthinkable. Yeah, uh, the consequences that um, uh, if this war continues, and uh, because uh, you know conflicts like these, when they linger, they only escalate. Exactly. Unless you sit down and talk. Exactly, and he's even alluded towards you know using nuclear warfare, which in itself is you know very worrying, um, because that's how it, as as you said, it just continues to progress, progress until you know it only takes one individual to make a wrong decision, wrong decision in the sense of sort of showing the other uh, rival, well who actually is the boss and mm. um, that will ruin countries uh, you know, the recent past of Hiroshima, you know is all uh, well documented we're all aware of, you know how many people died because of that and you know, continue um, there are continuous effects of that mm. but um and um, uh, you know to, to use a a very um, hackneyed phrase uh, that was very last century. Mm. The, the kind of nuclear weapons, oh that, yeah, they're that, much more powerful. You know, have been made now are, are uh, way more powerful mm. than the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, um, yeah, it, it is indeed unthinkable uh, the consequences um, uh, if the war and 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 and, and mind you, this is. Uh, not just you and I or or His Holiness talking about it. Mm. Russia has uh, has clearly talked about uh, you know uh, the use of uh, nuclear weapons. So it's it's really out in the open. Um, the American president has used the term Third mm. World War. So uh, you know this is not uh, all um, um, it's somebody's fantasy. It's uh, you know it's very it's very real and it's uh, it's very threatening. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it wasn't either parties, or at least it wasn't Russia's idea. They could never have thought that you know it would have taken them this long. They never, I think, expected the resistance that they received. Yeah. And you know, it's to their surprise that it's been it's been the time that it has taken them to actually you know occupy only 
I think it was four states, have they? Sort of four regions which they've claimed or thereabouts. But Imam Shahzib, I mean, I'd argue that that's, isn't that the same with uh, with most wars? I mean, wars mm. basically do are a result of uh, miscalculations. It's true, yeah. So, you know, uh, there's an argument that uh, in, in the Second World War, Hitler miscalculated mm. when he was invading, invading Poland. He didn't think that, you know, Britain would probably go to war yeah. as a result, and, 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 and then the rest of the world as a result of that. So... Um, so yeah, it's 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 all miscalculations which which lead to wars, and then miscalculations uh, and counter miscalculations will li- which lead to exacerbations. Yes, no, very true, exactly, and that's why I think that's what's taken him by surprise that him not realizing I think the past or the history at least mm-hmm. the history has repeated itself in this sort of element of miscalculations and. Hmm. Now I think he's resulted in using the um, sort of tactics that he has left in his war chest of turning off those pipelines, perhaps, or speculation around him turning off those pipelines, or saying they someone's you know um, there's been a leak in those pipelines or what have you, whatever the news is reporting. So I think that will certainly play a huge part in. Um, the European nations at least, or at least the West in sort of perhaps coming to the negotiation tables. That's what you, I think Putin wants. That's what definitely what he wants. I, I, I would hope so, you know. Yeah. I, I, one would if there is sanity, and, then yeah. Exactly. One would definitely hope and pray that that is the end result of uh, of this. Otherwise, you know, what what's the other alternative? The other there alternative is, I mean, is yeah. that... Uh, the other alternative is... Um, that you keep on fighting and it keeps on... Um, escalating, yeah. Escalating, exactly. More dead. Hmm, absolutely. Not to mention, uh, you know, inflation and all the mm. others. I mean, so so this is the really the first time uh, in in what eighty years, seventy years, that um, Europe has been affected uh, directly by directly. a war. Mm. Because there have been wars. Yeah, there have been many wars in the Middle East. Mm. Um, Funded by uh, and backed by the United States. Oh yes, and they made a lot of money. Those companies over there. And and yes, um, one would absolutely argue that that uh, may have happened as well. There's certainly an argument for it, uh, whether or not you agree with that. But um, a, it, this is the first time that this has actually happened close to home, mm. within Europe, mm. and Europe has really felt uh, the effects of a war. So I think yeah, we should. Um, Take that um, as a warning and um, and and uh, uh, try and really um, pray come to a for, settlement. Yeah. Really, I, I mean, as Muslims, we can only pray that you know it doesn't escalate more than it already has done so. Exactly. Um, because you know it's, it's it's just loss of life and it's it's unbelievable the amount of people that are dying currently and will continue to. So you know we hope and pray that you know this war does come to a swift. And conclusive end. Absolutely. Thank you very much, um, Imam Shazib, um, uh, for that analysis. Right. Uh, let's take a quick break now. And when we come back, we shall move into the first topic, which is about the increased use of vaping. What do you think about vaping? Do you think it's a, it's a good thing? Do you think it's on the rise uh, among young population? Uh, please uh, do share your views with us on 208 Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community in Islam. 
Thy boundless blessings and peace be upon Mustafa, O Lord. Verily, through him we receive thy light. My soul is eternally bonded to the soul of Muhammad. I made my heart drink deep of the brimful cup of this love. None better than he could I discover in the whole world. Most certainly, I have broken my heart loose from the grip of others. God's glory is reflected in your virtues, my beloved. Him I made my own by having made you mine. Having touched the hem of thy garment, O God, one is saved from being entrapped by the charms of others. Verily, I bow my head at your threshold alone. O my beloved, I swear by thy unity, in my love of thee I have become oblivious of my own self. By God, all other images have vanished from my heart ever since I had your countenance etched upon it. It was because of you that we became the best of all the peoples. O prophet of God, who is the best of all the prophets, as you marched ahead of all the rest, we too stepped forward. Let alone the human beings, even all the angels in the heavens follow suit and join me as I sing thy praise. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. So in this first segment, we will be talking about discussing um, teenage vaping on the increase. So is it better than smoking? A survey by NHS um, Digital suggests that vaping among secondary school children is rising with nearly one in five 15-year-old using e-cigarettes in 2021. Children are reportedly being targeted with enticing advertisements. The long-term effects of vaping are unclear, but it is less harmful than smoking cigarettes. Doctors say uh, children are being targeted by e-cigarettes companies with bright uh, packaging, exotic flavors, and, and enticing names. The long-term effects of vaping remain unknown, but it is much less harmful than smoking cigarettes. The UK has strict rules on safety, labeling, and advertising to prevent children from vaping, a government spokesman person said. The survey asked more than 9,000 pupils in 119 secondary schools in England about their habits between September 2021 and February 2022. The survey asked the percentage of teenagers uh, taking drugs and smoking cigarettes fell between 2018 and 2021 and alcohol use was unchanged. Overall, 18% of 11 to 15 years old pupils said they had tried drugs down from 24% in 2018. Cannabis is the most popular drug among this age group with 6% saying they had taken it last year. Only 3% of people said they were current smokers, a fall from 5% in 2018. Vaping among 15 years old girls rose from 10% in 2018 to 21%. 61% of people who use vapes obtained them from other people, mostly friends. Selling e-cigarettes or vapes to children is illegal in the UK 
and every vaping product sells salt containing nicotine must be registered by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA. But recently, trading standards told BBC News the market was being flooded by thousands of unregulated vaping products containing potentially harmful substances. Dr. Mike McCain from the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health said he was deeply disturbed by the rising of vaping in children and young people. E-cigarettes remain in relatively new product and their long-term effects are still unknown, he said. It is clear that children and young people are being targeted by e-cigarettes companies with bright packaging, exotic flavors and enticing and enticing names. It was time for the UK government to introduce uh, planned packaging of e-cigarettes as well as nicotine and non-nicotine e-liquid packs. Dr. McCann said, if action is not taken soon, we run the risk of having generations of children addicted to nicotine, he added. A Department of Health and Social Care spokesperson said, the UK had some of the strongest regulations in place to prevent children from vaping. For example, there are rules for all vape products on safety, labeling and, advertis- and advertising, and they cannot resemble a food or cosmetic product. Nicotine strength is limited to 20 mg per ml. We are clear that vaping should only be used to help people quit smoking. Thank you very much, uh, Imam Daniel, uh, for that. Uh, they're believed to be around 6 million smokers in England and, and nearly 4 million vapors. According to the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience team from King's College London, uh, this team was commissioned by the Department of Health and Social Care to undertake the biggest review of its kind on vaping in England. And their findings confirm that, number one, cigarettes are dangerous because they contain toxicants which are found in tobacco uh, tobacco smoke and promote cancer, lung disease and cardiovascular disease. Vaping products, including disposable e-cigarettes and reusable, got that right finally, could still contain nicotine, which is advertised on packaging due to its addictive nature. There is no significant evidence that short-term and medium-term vaping causes health problems, but the long-term effects are unknown. Lead author of the study, Professor Anne McNeil, who specializes in tobacco addictions and vaping, is very unlikely to be risk-free, as the continual inhaling of vape fluid into the lungs would have some effect. We strongly discourage anyone who has never smoked from taking up vaping or smoking, she said. Researchers say more needs to be done to stop children from taking up vaping, Part of the study found that local authority trading standards efforts have been scaled down and compliance with regulators is not enough to prevent underage sales and access to illicit products. Um, Imam Shazeb, your thoughts? It's very interesting to see this um, a new sort of phenomenon come to everybody's attention, um, you know, vaping. I think perhaps a couple of years ago, nobody even heard of it. Um, but every other person in the street, if you ever walk down your local high street, you find a number of people using this um, sort of uh, contraption and, you know, huge amounts of smoke that's sort of blowing out. 
And if anything, I think it's more of a, um, dare I be a skeptic, um, sort of a sort of a cultural thing, perhaps um, less so than any sort of a medicinal, uh, you know, um, apparatus. Um, so, bit of a fashion statement. You I think? think it's a bit of a fashion statement yeah. with all that smoke, especially for the youngsters. Mm. You know, eleven to fifteen year old. I think the Imam Daniel was saying, are oh, using this also. I think the survey conducted consists of around 9,000 11 to 15 year olds and to see you know such a tender age group uh, involved in such activities is yes it is you know the reality but it's also very alarming at the same time Um, and alarming in the sense that you know well they should be engaged in other activities um, and definitely nowhere near these sort of devices and what have you. And also, I think it's it's incorrect to think, as as we just read out from the results of the research conducted by King's College London, that it's risk-free. It yeah. certainly isn't risk-free. Um, there will be some damage uh, because of vaping, because at the end of the day, you are inhaling toxicants. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm very sort of ignorant of the whole thing, really. I mean, or, uh, I think it's a liquid, perhaps, or something rather, which I don't know how it turns into smoke. Um, Me too. I've never smoked in my life, and, and I'm sure Daniel, Imam Daniel hasn't as well. I wonder why they gave this topic to us this morning. All three non-smokers <laughs> sitting here as as experts on on vaping, uh, <laughs> who've, who've never vaped or smoked <laughs> in their lives. But I must say, from a from a fiscal point of view, um, I think there's, I see so many shops popping up left, right, and centre, or just providing bespoke vaping um, sort of tubes and whatever they're called. Um, and they must be generating huge amounts of revenue yeah. from this um, because now you know you can't really openly sell cigarettes as such you can sell them but they have to be behind sort of these sure. um, uh, shelves mm. um, um, where the checkpoints are mm. um, but these vaping shops there aren't any restrictions you know they openly sell them behind the counter above the counter wherever you well, want no to wonder there are 4 million people vaping in, in England alone at the moment there you are um, so it's hugely on the rise, um, and it, it is a bit of a, um, um, if anything, a fashion statement. You know, we may be wrong, um, but that's what you know we can certainly see in our local communities. And it's only on the rise, I think. It definitely is on the rise. Uh, let me now um, sort of move to the um, to the Islamic uh, angle around uh, smoking and. Uh, you know what what the Islamic perspective is um, around smoking um, and how how is it how um, Islam views that so um, we're now going to play a, sh- a short clip uh, from um, this is from a program called Faith Matters um, and this clip is about um, smoking um, and how it is viewed in Islam let's listen in This comes from uh, Akbar Khan Sahib from Bradford in the, in the United Kingdom. Jazakumullah Akbar Sahib for your question. And he says there is a big campaign going on about educating people about the harmful effects of smoking. Many Islamic websites, um, although I'd add in here it's not just Islamic websites, many websites say that smoking is bad for you. He says Islamic ones say it is haram. What is the Amdiya viewpoint on this? Dr. Saab, you're a medical man. 
Again, I th- uh, um, smoking obviously came much after the Holy Prophet ﷺ. It was not present at that time. It, we, we know that it was discovered by the Spanish sailors in the 1500s or so in the American shores. Uh, and therefore, we cannot say that it is specifically men- mentioned um, in the Holy Quran or by the Holy Prophet ﷺ to that degree. But we, what we do know is that the, the harmful effects of smoking, I think, are there for everyone to see and to recognize and to take on because it contains many poisonous materials. It contains nicotine, it contains tar, it contains carbon monoxide, it contains arsenic. So a person who's, who is smoking is taking all of these poisonous materials into his own body and therefore he is um, having a harmful effect not only on his body, but also to the people around him, mm-hmm. to society, to the environment. So there is a harmful effect which is not limited to the smoker alone. And taking those clear guidelines in, 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 in essence, then we have to see what Islam says regarding this sort of thing. Allah says, do not kill yourself. La taqtalu anfusakum. And also, you see, in, in a sense, smoking is killing yourself by, by this action. So keeping the spirit of the Holy Quran in mind, then we have to say that this is a very undesirable thing in, in that sense. And therefore, it is, some, it is a habit that should be shunned. Uh, in that sense, it is a makru thing. But we cannot perhaps call it that is haram because it has not been specifically mentioned in the Holy Quran in, in that sense. But also intoxicants are prohibited in Islam. Yes. Now people say that two of the definitions of, of intoxicants are that it is a poison and that they stimulate or excite you. And uh, scientists now tell us that these are two things which can be said is true of smoking that they are poisonous because of the things that they contain inside them and also they can excite you depending on what you have inside the cigarettes and, and that taking that into account then perhaps they do fall within the realm of intoxicants so therefore again we are coming back to the argument that it is an undesirable thing and therefore that's something that Muslims should keep well away one last thing uh, regarding hygiene because we know that obviously smokers um, because of the inhalation and because of the nicotine and because of the tar, obviously they cannot keep in a very hygienic state in, in that respect. Uh, and because a Muslim is required to, cleanliness is part of your faith, the Prophet said. So keeping that in mind and knowing that we have to keep ourselves clean for our salat and for our prayers during the course of the day, then smoking obviously is going to contra indicate that and go against the spirit of Islam as far as cleanliness and medical reasons are concerned. I think, I mean, just this thing about smoking is always an interesting one because it is used as a means when it's compared about other things which are strictly forbidden. Alcohol is a very good example that Islam is very strict in forbidding intoxicants and alcohol by definition. Yet smoking, some would argue, from a medical perspective, is known to cause greater and harmful impacts, especially even if it's done in, quote, the often word used, word used quite often, which is moderation. Mm. Um, I suppose from an earlier question, we could say if it's undesirable, you should always smoke if you choose to, but with your left hand. But um, <laughs> one of the things, just to put that into context, alcohol, and then we see a lot of drugs misuse as well, and then tobacco smoking. 
differentiating between the three, Jangir Sa? Well, obviously we can differentiate. There are different levels of intoxication involved in these three different things. But uh, the cigarette will also fall into the category, as uh, uh, Dr. Saab alluded to, the munkar, which is not only harmful for oneself, but also harmful to other people as well. And uh, Chaudhry Muhammad Zafullah Khan Saab, uh, who specifically mentioned that in one of his books, where he said that uh, if you ask you know, about cigarette smoking, then uh, it has to be said that it falls into the category of munkar because it's, it's harmful and noxious to others. Mm. And many people's children as secondary smokers uh, uh, become very ill. And that's proven more and more. Yes, it is, isn't yes. it? And uh, in fact, they, they even get worse quality of smoke because they don't uh, inhale it through a filter. Mm -hmm. They get it directly into their lungs. So not only we're killing ourselves, we're also killing our own children mm. and the people around us. So in all, because of all those reasons, uh, cigarette smoking is uh, a harmful thing. But it's also a wasteful thing. A lot of money is spent on cigarettes, which could have been spent on better causes. But the, you know, everyone knows how much out of pocket they, they are when they finish their year after having smoked through the year, themselves through the year. So that needs no comment, really. So anything which is harmful uh, for oneself, harmful to the environment or others, and also wasteful, is highly uh, discouraged in Islam. And uh, we can't say, as uh, Dr. Saab rightly said, that it's haram because it hasn't been pronounced as such. But our logic tells us, and so many verses, other verses of the Quran tell us, that we have to avoid it. So that should be enough for the true believer. Right. So that was a detailed explanation uh, from um, a program called Faith Matters. Um, you can watch that program on uh, YouTube as well. And um, that was about um, smoking and um, how it is viewed, um, intoxicants and, and, and smoking is viewed in Islam. Um, let me move uh, straight to another clip, uh, this one uh, from uh, a question on session with the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Ahmed. May Allah have uh, mercy on his soul, um, also about Islam's perspective on smoking. Let's listen in. What's the attitudes in the religion towards, for example, alcohol or smoking? Yes. Well, smoking is not uh, prohibited in the sense that uh, you, if you do it, you, you commit a crime, religious crime. You commit a crime against yourself. This is the type of our attitude to smoking. It is not forbidden. In, in the Holy Quran or in the tradition, some people say because it was not invented at that time. But the Holy Quran does not prohibit things, uh, naming only this should be prohibited and that should be prohibited. It lays down the principle. Whatever comes under that general principle is prohibited. <coughs> there are so many ways of gambling which were not found in that time. But the gambling in essence is described in a manner that whatever man can invent would also fall to that category. So halal and haram, these are the terms, what is forbidden to for you and what is not forbidden to you is described in principles. And except for some times which are also named particularly. So the smoking does not fall under that general principle at all. This is why the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, when once he was asked, why don't you forbid your people to smoke and abstain from it with religious, as a religious duty, he said, I am not a new prophet. 
I am a subordinate prophet, which means I follow the Quran and the tradition of the Holy Prophet of Islam. So I uh, I can't invent anything new. So when he was confronted with the same question, it was not found in that time. He said, "But the God in which you, in whom you believe, knew what was to come. If that is the objection, then you you should have objection against the existence of God and the objection against his pre-knowledge." or abandon this religion. So, uh, well, he was naturally satisfied. Now, our attitude is to discourage smoking. And that is all. In our town, Rabwa, it is discouraged not only individually, but we also dis- discourage it by telling people <coughs> not to smoke in public. Let it remain as an individual evil. Don't turn it into a social evil. Because the moment you begin to smoke in public, the youth would be attracted towards it. And they, they would think there is no taboo, there are no taboos and so on. So, uh, right from the childhood, they would be drawn into this habit. They would see the, the, the elders enjoying smoking, you know, in a manner as they were, they were impressed by it. So, this is what we do. But elsewhere we tell Amadis to abstain from it because it's injurious to you yourself. It's, it's, it's not healthy. Wine and alcohol, of course, fall into the category which are forbidden, very strictly forbidden. And although most of the Muslims coming from um, the East do not observe this uh, injunction of the Holy Quran, strictly speaking, or even loosely speaking, I think, generally indulge in drinking. The Ahmadis mostly do not. Occasionally some cases are reported to me of some Ahmadis who are indulging in drinking, but uh, that is a very rare exception. Mostly do not. And when they do, they try to hide this fact with the result that they remain limited within a certain, you know, measure, and they don't become alcoholics. So, they, they don't go beyond a certain limit, because otherwise they would be known, everybody, every, every Ahmadi would know that such a man is a drinker, is, 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 is uh, drinks, because it's a very, very bad mark, so he would rather hide himself. And in so doing, sometimes they drift away from the community so completely that they are no longer our problem. They live a separate life of their own. They don't want to be uh, called upon by Ahmadis. They don't mix, they don't encourage um, relationship with other Ahmadis. So the problem is solved by them themselves. So that was the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizat Ayer Ahmad. Giving uh, the Islamic perspective about um, uh, smoking and uh, and how smoking is actually discouraged uh, within Islam. Um, we're now uh, coming uh, close to the eight o'clock news. We will uh, now take a break for that, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion on this topic about smoking, and um, uh, continue to talk about the Islamic perspective and uh, uh, close the discussion around eight ten. 
uh, after which we'll move on uh, to the next topic, um, which is about um, uh, about the uh, the effects that um, uh, Alzheimer Alzheimer has on uh, the language centers of the brain. So. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 3rd of October 2022. The time is 8.03 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia, Imam Shazib Athar, and Imam Daniel Ahmed live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. And we're talking about vaping, the increase in vaping, um, as well as a discussion around smoking and how is smoking perceived within Islam? Is it an absolute no-no or is it something which is uh, disliked and um, uh, not recommended at all in uh, in Islam? Uh, before we went on to, the, on to the break, we played a short clip from the fourth head of the Ahmadi Muslim community um, explaining Islam's perspective on smoking a little more on that. Um, uh, so we have another clip for you, which also explains um, Islamic perspective in slightly more detail. This is also from Faith Matters, a program that uh, you can also watch uh, on YouTube. Let's listen in. We're going to stay in Canada for our next question, which comes from uh, Haris Khan in Brampton, Ontario in Canada. Assalamu alaikum and Jazakumullah for your uh, question, Haris. Um, he extends a Assalamu alaikum to the whole panel and then then talks about things which are harmful to your body, as he rightly says, are forbidden in Islam. He then cites drugs, alcohol, particularly. But then he asks a question, and this has been a question which is often asked, why are smoking or cigarettes in particular not strictly forbidden? He then goes out on to actually say that, I understand that cigarettes may not have been around during the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But to the best of my knowledge, such a topic has not been brought up, he suggests, by the Hazrat Promised Messiah al-Islam, nor any of the Khulafas. And that's his interpretation, and we will come on to the actual, actual facts in a moment. If such a topic has been brought up, he says, I've not encountered it. And that's therefore why I'm asking this particular question. Dr. Saab, if I could start with you. Um, let's start with the Holy Quran, first of all. And that's, I think, the premise of from the Amdi Muslim community. We always say the be-all and end-all ultimately is based around the Holy Quran. And it does, as um, Harris has pointed out, talk in specific terms about certain things, but not about smoking, as he suggests. 
The, the beauty of the Holy Quran is it covers a wide range of subjects and some are mentioned by name and some are mentioned by guiding principles. And this is where a Muslim, a man who is, a man is the most intelligent of Allah's creation. He has been given the intellect to be able to fathom out and see what Allah has really laid down for us in, in guidance in that respect. But as far as uh, food and drink and obviously inhaling is, is something that goes into our body is concerned as well. Allah has given clear guidelines in the Holy Quran that it has to be halal and tayyiban. So it has to be wholesome. And uh, by any stretch of the imagination, we obviously know that uh, smoking is uh, something that is not wholesome for the body, for yourself. And now even for those people who are around you, so that you are harming people, of not course. only yourself, but your passive smokers now, is, it's felt that they are being damaged by cigarette smoking as well. So just in this instance as well, we can say that the Holy Quran has given us a clear indication that anything that is not wholesome is forbidden in Islam. So the Holy Quran is categorically giving us that guideline. On top of that, the Holy Quran speaks of uh, certain things which have benefits and they also have some harm. But uh, the guiding principle there is, is where the benefits outweigh uh, the, the harm that is permitted. Where the harm outweighs the benefit, then certainly that is forbidden in Islam. And I think if you look at uh, uh, the medical research that is very clear in regards to smoking, I cannot think of any benefit of smoking in that respect. Take it medically or socially as well, that would allow you to be uh, permitted to smoke, smoke in that respect. So the Holy Quran, in fact, has given us clear guidelines on this aspect of, uh, of our uh, intake. So the Holy Prophet ﷺ obviously has not by name forbidden smoking. But you should also remember that uh, nicotine is a drug as well. So if drugs are forbidden, as he has said, then certainly this mm -hmm. comes under the category of something that is forbidden in, in that respect because as well. Because nature. of its addictive nature. Mm -hmm. Hazrat Masih Ma'ud, the Promised Messiah wasalam, was sent to reform the Muslims and that, that was the purpose of his advent. But what Hazrat Masih wasalam, was very categoric and he said that I have not come with a new Sharia or a new law. I have come to revitalize the Muslims and to bring them back to the pristine teachings of uh, Islam mm -hmm. that uh, are portrayed in the Holy Quran and by the Holy Prophet So he has directed our attention very directly to what the Quran says with regard to uh, food and drink and mm -hmm. other aspects of our uh, daily existence. He said that Hazrat Masih Maud uh, was asked this question and this is the answer that he gave that if you look at the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet ﷺ, then there is no doubt that according to these teachings smoking cannot be permitted but I do not have the authority to forbid something that the Holy Prophet ﷺ in specifics did not forbid himself because that would be a new law a new Sharia that I have introduced and this is a beautiful example of how he was a subservient prophet of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and did not bring a new law. So this, this is very clear and categoric in that respect. And the Khulafa in, in their time as well, up to the present Khalifa, uh, Ayyadullah Ta'ala bin Asul Aziz, have the same message for us is that the guidance is contained in the Holy Quran. It is very categoric that smoking is forbidden in that respect. And therefore it is for us Muslims, for us Ahmadis to be able to attach to, uh, importance to these issues and make sure that we adhere to the teachings of the Holy Quran in that respect. 
Sadly, for the Muslim nations, I was thinking this, and I was thinking that smoking is very prevalent in many Muslim countries, more so than it is perhaps in the West as well. Uh, if you go to many of the Middle Eastern countries, it is a very prevalent habit, mm -hmm. uh, and they perhaps do not attach any great significance to the fact that this is forbidden in Islam if you look at the teachings of the Holy Quran in that respect. But I must add that it's not forbidden in the haram sense as yes. Dr. Saib has been yes. saying. Maybe the people might misunderstand that what's meant is that we can't declare it haram because haram has been defined in the Quran. Yes. But it's still obnoxious to the health, it's obnoxious to other people. Therefore on, uh, in other categories it will fall under things which are to be, uh, to be avoided anyway. So yes. harmful yeah. in that regard. Exactly. So that was the um, uh, a discussion from a program called Faith Matters, and uh, that explained again in in a little bit um, of uh, further detail about the Islamic perspective around um, smoking. Um, <clears throat> Imam Shazib, your final thoughts on vaping um, and and smoking? I think from what we've understood. Um, and from what we've read, you know, vaping has been sort of the lesser of the uh, two evils, really, with regards to smoking. We fully understand the implications of smoking because of, um, you know, the decades that we've had to sort of understand it. That's more than decades, I think, um, for more than a century, I think, or perhaps even longer, mankind has used tobacco. But um, this new phenomenon of vaping is still very much so um, in the, um, new to us. And um, as it progresses, we'll understand its implications. But on the essence um, of what has been discussed, and from at least from an Islamic point of view, what we know here is um, that drugs are forbidden because they are harmful to all people. And in Islam, anything harmful, which takes away one from piety, is forbidden. Um, during the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, the peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, people previously used to drink alcohol, and this prevented them from saying and offering their prayers properly, as they were intoxicated. And that's why it was therefore forbidden. So, we've listened to the clips, we've understood, you, you know, um, the core essence of, you know, what Islam permits and what Islam does not permit. And, as you know, time will progress, we'll understand that indeed, from where we currently do actually stand, you know, vaping is certainly something which I think should be absconded from, and um, it should be something which is certainly not encouraged. Um, and that does swiftly end that segment and takes us on to the next, which is the effects of Alzheimer's on the language senses of the brain, which is a very interesting segment, a very different one from what we have previously um, discussed. So the, the gist of the story is with regards to a recent study which has highlighted how Alzheimer's disease affects the language centers of the brain. And by using amyloid PET imaging, lead study author Dr. Emily Roglinski says, by understanding where these proteins the amyloids accumulate first and over time we can better understand the course of the disease and where to target treatment so the question arises are there any treatments for alzheimer's disease well there isn't currently 
a cure for the disease. But there is a medicine available that can temporarily reduce the symptoms and some treatments that may slow the disease's progression. Participating in speech and language therapy and cognitive therapy can help to maintain language and thinking skills for as long as possible. Learning new ways to communicate such as sign language or taking medicines such as selective serotonin reputake inhibitors of the SSRIs to manage behavioural changes and reduce anxiety or depression associated with PPA. Taking medications approved for Alzheimer's disease such as ACHE inhibitors, these medicines increase levels of Actucline, a substance in the brain that helps nerve cells communicate with each other. Memotine. This medicine is not an ACHE inhibitor. It works by blocking the effects of an excessive amount of a chemical in the brain called glutamate. Suitable for those who cannot take or are unable to tolerate ACHE inhibitors. And as usual, we will have very shortly various experts, various doctors, which allows us to understand um, this, the effects of Alzheimer's on the language centers of the brain. Um, and, you know, their sort of um, in-depth research into the topic, which will certainly help all of us and indeed our listeners. So what is the scope for further research into this? Well, developing new treatments for Alzheimer's has proven very much so challenging. However, scientists still need to know more about how the brain functions. Scientists are currently working on better ways to diagnose Alzheimer's disease in its earlier stages, before symptoms initially start appearing. These include brain scan techniques that can track amyloid beta or detect changes in brain function, size or blood use. Spinal tests that detect abnormal amounts of amyloid and tau proteins could help track disease progress in those with mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. One of the new Alzheimer's treatments is developing and targeting the microscopic clumps or the protein beta-amyloid plaques. The plaques have long been considered as a sign of Alzheimer's disease. Two strategies aimed at beta-amyloid include immunization against it and blocking its production. Studies also continue on the kinds of exercises, mental activities, diets and lifestyle choices that seem to minimise the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease or to reduce the severity and progression of the symptoms. Right, thank you uh, for that introduction, uh, Imam Shazeb. Uh, we now have uh, on the line Dr. Ellison Ray, who is a professor of language and communication at Cardiff University. She is the author of the book Why Dementia Makes Communication Difficult A Guide to Better Outcomes in Her Research. She uses a specialist knowledge of linguistics to understand how language and communication go, can go wrong when someone has dementia. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very good morning to you, Dr. Ray. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Ray. Can I start off by asking, so, so you've written a book on, uh, on dementia. What's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer? Oh, well, dementia is a more general term that is used to describe a range of different, different problems that can arise when there is brain damage. 
Um, and one of the types of dementia um, is called Alzheimer's disease, but there are other types as well, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, uh, primary progressive aphasia, a whole range of different types of dementias that can be caused by different kinds of brain disease in different parts of the body, in different parts of the brain. Excellent. Thank you for, um, uh, for, for uh, clarifying that. Um, so uh, please tell us a little more about the communication difficulties then that a person diagnosed with Alzheimer's uh, usually face. Sure. Well, um, as I say, Alzheimer's disease is caused by brain damage. Uh, it attacks certain areas of the brain and those cause particular kinds of communication problems. So we can think of three main types of communication difficulty. The first one is that people with Alzheimer's can struggle to find the words that they want. They sometimes just can't bring the right word to mind. Now, obviously, that's going to affect how well they can express themselves. They might not be able to recall someone's name, for example, which could be embarrassing for them. They might stumble over the main words that tell you the topic of the conversation. Um, or if they can't find a word, they might replace it with a more vague word like thing or that, which, of course, makes it hard to follow what they mean. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that Alzheimer's disease causes damage to the areas of the brain that lay down new memories. So the person does something, goes somewhere, or hears some information, but their brain just doesn't store that information so they don't recall it. And this has a massive impact on communication because you've got one person in the conversation who thinks that the other person knows something or recalls something, and they don't. And so it's very, very easy to talk at cross-purposes or to get annoyed with each other because you've got different visions of how the world is. And that, of course, can affect the relationship as well as the actual content of the conversation. It's very common to hear people say to somebody who's got Alzheimer's, I told you that ten times already, which, of course, is confusing for the person with Alzheimer's if they don't recall that they've been told that before and they don't really know what's going on. But, and, that's the, and then the third problem is that the brain damage um, associated with Alzheimer's will slow down the person's processing more generally. And that means the person might struggle to work out what's going on, to follow the thread of conversation and events and so on. And that means they might start to get nervous that they're not keeping up, and then they might pull back, um, withdraw, not participate in conversations. So you will often see a person with Alzheimer's sitting in the room with lots of other people but they just, just look like they're in their own world and they're not engaging and everyone else is talking around them as if they weren't there and that's really not good for them because they're getting isolated and dr allison how does this differ from primary progressive apophasia okay so um primary progressive aphasia is caused by brain disease as well but it different areas of the brain than the ones we associate with Alzheimer's disease and therefore it has obviously different effects on processing. The, the term aphasia refers to language problems and in this type of dementia there are particular difficulties uh, connected with, um, in connecting words with um, the word form to its meaning, so the sound of the word or the, the word on the page, they don't know what it means. So they might hear a word and know that they recognise it but they just can't connect it to what it means. Um, they might have only a few rather vague words rather than a bigger range. So, for example, in one study that was done, a person with primary progressive aphasia was shown pictures of 25 different animals and asked to name them, but they could only find four words 
to name them with. So they were calling everything a dog, a cat, a horse, or a cow. Um, they might use the wrong word in conversation, and that might mean that the other person has to do some extra thinking to figure out uh, what they meant. And meanwhile, the weird thing is that the person may still be able to speak quite fluently, and so it might not be immediately obvious to others that they're not understanding, and that will cause its own problems, because then you can't figure out why the conversation isn't quite working as you expected. And as with Alzheimer's, the impact on communication is likely to come from the various people in the conversation building up different pictures of what's being talked about and what the other person knows, and that will cause difficulties down the line when expectations aren't met. And in terms of, you know, how can people sort of, who have loved ones with a diagnosis of dementia, mm. facilitate communication more effectively? Yeah, this is obviously a very, very big topic. At a general level, I think the key things are, first of all, it's really important to be patient and to be kind. It's very easy to forget, just be kind to the person. That means noticing, for example, if you're talking too fast or if the person isn't keeping up and not getting cross with them. It also means noticing then how you're reacting to them. You just have to try and imagine how you would feel if you couldn't express yourself well or you couldn't understand, the last thing that you would want is for others to be frustrated and angry with you or to leave you out of the conversation. You'd want them to help you, so you have to try and think yourself into that space. And another important thing to do is to take a step back and ask yourself what the person was likely to be trying to achieve by speaking. So it's not just what were they trying to say, but what did they want to happen as a result so they might say one thing, but what they really wanted was to get a compliment from you or to get reassurance or to get some physical assistance. So rather than getting stuck on whether you understood their exact words, it's about standing back and looking at how you can see if you can find a way to respond in the way that they probably wanted you to. And can you also tell us about any research that you are currently working on? Yes, of course, a major interest in my research is um, working out what sort of practical training can best help family members in particular to communicate better when they've got a loved one with some kind of dementia. And I've been working a bit with an organisation called Empowered Conversations, which is based in Greater Manchester. And what they do is they offer small group training in communication that helps family members to notice what's going on and gives them new ideas for how to respond to those challenges. And so one of my PhD students at Cardiff University, Axel Bergström, is researching the effectiveness of this training by interviewing family members who have taken the training and some who haven't to see if there are differences in how they approach communication with a person with dementia. So that's very interesting, exciting work. And we want to see whether empowered conversations could be extended to other parts of the UK in the future because it does seem to be a very effective method. Certainly. Now, that's been very insightful, uh, Dr. Allison. Um, thank you so much for being on this, this morning, and hopefully we can hear from you again very soon in the future. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Allison Ray, uh, Professor of Language and Communication at Cardiff University. Um, we'll take a short break now, and after the break, we'll continue with this segment, and we'll have various other guest callers helping us understand this segment in greater detail. But join us after this break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Qur'an is a rare pearl. Its outside is light, and its inside is light, and its above is light, 
and its below is light. And there is light in every word of it. It is a spiritual garden whose clustered fruits are within easy reach and through which streams flow. Every fruit of good fortune is found in it and every torch is lit from it. Its light has penetrated to my heart and I could not have acquired it by any other means. And Allah is my witness that if there had been no Qur'an, I would have found no delight in life. I find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand Josephs. I incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart. It has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured and it has a wonderful effect on my heart. Myself is lost in its beauty. It has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the Holy Qur'an, which is a surging ocean of the water of life. He who drinks from it comes to life. Indeed, he brings others to life. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 3rd of October 2022. The time is 8.29 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia, Imam Shazi Patha, and Imam Daniel Ahmed. And we are talking about uh, dementia, um, uh, more specifically, the effects of Alzheimer, which is a condition, as was just uh, explained to us. Um, within um, uh, within dementia, so the effects of Alzheimer on the language centers of the brain. So, and and we're talking about um, the studies which have highlighted how Al- Alzheimer's disease uh, affects the language centers of the brain. Um, um, and this research has been brought about by PET imaging and other things. So. Um, uh, the idea is that by understanding where these proteins accumulate first and over time, we can better understand the course of the di- of the disease and where to target uh, treatment. There is currently no cure for Alzheimer's disease, but there is medicine available that can temporarily reduce the symptoms and some treatments that more that may slow the disease's uh, progression 
participating in speech and language therapy and cognitive therapy can help to maintain language and thinking skills for as long as possible and learning new ways to communicate such as sign language also helps taking medicines such as uh, selective serotonin um, inhibitors or SSRIs to manage behavioral changes and reduce anxiety or depression associated uh, with um, uh, this condition also helps in taking medications approved for Alzheimer's disease um, such as ACHE inhibitors and and others uh, are also um, part of the solution. Um, We now have uh, on the line with us Dr. Anna Wokmer, who is a senior research fellow at UCL and a senior speech and th- and language therapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. She specializes in working with people with primary progressive aphasia, developing into interventions to meet the needs of people with PPA and their families. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Thank you very much and good morning, uh, uh, Dr. Wogmer. So if I can start by asking you, um, what um, give us an overview of, of, the, of what uh, primary progressive aphasia is and what causes it? Of course. So primary progressive aphasia basically describes a, a small group of rare diseases that are a progressive neurological disease impacting on thinking so they fall under the uh, group of within the group of dementias Mm -hmm. and the difference with this group is that people present with language symptoms first so quite typically the people I meet will say they might have had word finding difficulties or difficulties understanding words or sentences or even effortful speech as one of the initial symptoms and there are three different types of primary progressive aphasia and they're they're caused by different underlying proteins in the brain and we all have these proteins but for some reason and we don't understand why the amount of protein changes and this causes damage to the brain tissue resulting in this progressive disease So, Dr. Anna, can you just tell us a bit about what are the symptoms of PPA and how do these develop over time? Of course. So, the initial symptoms of PPA are language symptoms, as I mentioned, and there's three different types. So, there's one type that is often associated with um, amyloid, so it's associated with an Alzheimer's disease. And um, this is a, what we call a rarer type of Alzheimer's. And people with this type of PPA will present with difficulties in thinking of words. They often say, I know what I want to say, but the word is on the tip of the tongue. And then they might produce words, but put sounds in the wrong order. So, for example, in English, a good example might be instead of saying animal, they say manimal. And then over time, that might become more difficult. So they make more and more of these speech sound errors. And then they might then find it harder to understand sentences and produce full sentences. The other two types are called semantic. And this is where people start with difficulties understanding and using word meanings. And then the third type is a type called non-fluent variant, where people present with 
difficulties in actually moving the lip and tongue and mouth. We call that apraxia. And they also find grammar difficult. And then over time, these become more pronounced. And sometimes, depending on the underlying cause of this, people might then develop more and more uh, thinking difficulties alongside it. But these tend to come later. Dr. Walkman, if I can ask um, maybe a slightly unintelligent question. Um, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes we, uh, I, I shouldn't say we, I even find um, uh, it difficult mm-hmm. to, to remember a certain word. And, and like you said, it's, it's on the tip of your tongue. And you don't, So do you, is, is that related to PPA or is that, do you think, the onset of PPA or, or is that <laughs> something else? I'm glad you asked that, and that's not an unintelligent question. That's a very good question, because we do all experience the odd occasion when we're stressed or tired or we're, you know, trying to do multiple things at once, especially, and the word is on the tip of our tongue. So, yes, it is really, really typical for us all to experience that. But what we're describing is when it happens all the time, so multiple Mm -hmm. times a day, and it's actually impacting on that person's ability to do their activities of daily living. That's when we become concerned. But what's really important is to double check. There aren't other causes, like I said, fatigue or you're being distracted. But sometimes, um, you know, a change in hormones can cause difficulties with thinking of words, the wrong medications, it can be a side effect. So what's really important is before we all get concerned that we might have PPA, that we go to our GPs and check there isn't something else going on. Sure. Okay. That's good sound advice. Thank you, doctor. Um, So what support is available for people who have been diagnosed with PPA? Yeah. Well, this is um, a really good question. And so as a speech and language therapist, I provide uh, support. So we do... um, therapy with people with PPA and their family members so and we know that speech and language therapy can for some people maintain their speech so prevent some of their speech from getting worse by practice Hmm. and we can also work with the people around the person and the person to create environments that allow a person to communicate to the best of their ability and um, we've also got strategies we've got tech we have quite a few things up our sleeve and then the other thing to mention is that for some types of ppa it may be so the i mentioned at the beginning there's the rare type of ppa associated with alzheimer's so for some types associated with alzheimer's there may be pharmacological interventions that can also help but that's not the case for all ppa types if I can st- ask maybe a slightly broader question around uh, yeah. dementia, maybe. So, yeah. so people with dementia, so one of the the sort of common symptoms is that they f- forget and they become forgetful. Yeah. So w- when you say speech therapy for people with PPA, um, what, what, what's a therapy like, you know, helping them remember things um, or is a similar sort of therapy available for them or recommended or... Um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, I mean, if, if somebody is very forgetful and is a member of your family, yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is, it, is it helpful to, to ask, uh, to, to, to remind them that, that, listen, you've forgotten to do this or, or just sort of carry on? Yeah, good question. Um, so I guess if we're talking about the PPA, somebody with PPA, don't, 
it's worth mentioning that this is a group who don't really have memory difficulties initially. Hmm. So for them, we're working on language. But in general, I would say, well, I'd say two things. The first thing I'd say is ask the person what they prefer. So, you know, I've often met clients and their family members and the person says, yes, I really appreciate my family and my family. And other people and they know it Dr. Walkman, you're breaking up a little bit. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Is that a bit better? Yes, it's slightly better now. Yeah. Um, so I guess I think the most important thing is to ask the person. Okay. And this is really the family members who always did as Dr. Walkman, we're family. losing you. Um, okay. Uh, do you think we should call you back or do you, let's make another attempt to see if we can hear you better. So if you can just repeat the last part of your answer, the, the second reason you were giving. I, I'm leaving you as well. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yes, I can hear you now. Uh, yeah, okay. can you hear me? Excellent. <laughs> uh, yes, so I we can. missed the last part of your answer. So if you could... Uh, Apologies, uh, just, just of worries. course. I, I really was just saying it's really important to um, remember that you're the family member and not the mm. therapist. So right. as a family member, be the person you always were, the son, the daughter, the partner, and try not to turn into a therapist. Um, because I think that can be really hard for you as well. Um, that means mm. that you then carry another burden as therapist. Sure. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much. So um, it, going back to sort of your research and your work, what inspired mm. you to specialize in, in working uh, with people with PPA? Um, so I found, so I, I specialized in this area about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And at that time, this was an area where there was very little um, therapy, very little research on how speech therapy could help people with PPA. And and I found there were lots of similarities between the people with PPA that I was working with and people who have stroke aphasia or brain injury. So there's lots of transferable things from the broader speech and language therapy um, discipline, which can really help. And I was very motivated to create some of the research and improve the services for this client group because often people people with PPA, I don't think I've mentioned this, are a bit younger. Hmm. So it's not uncommon for this to be diagnosed when people are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So often these are people who are still working, who've got young families. So I passionately felt there was a lot that we could do to support these these clients that I was seeing in clinic. And that's really what drove me to work in this area. Right. So are there some medical tests? How do you diagnose this uh, disease? That's a really good question. And the, the short answer is it can be tricky to diagnose this. But the recommendation is that you... Um, my recommendation is that you start with your GP and you exclude anything else for starters. You know, as we mentioned earlier, there are other things that can um, impact on your day-to-day mm. functioning. But and then secondly, we, you get referred to a specialist memory clinic. And at the memory clinic, you would have a medical professional who, can, who would do a neurological exam. We also do brain scans. And you might have some specialist exams from a speech therapist or a neuropsychologist who put you through some tests. And that all, that 
that allows us to get a full picture of what's going on. And sometimes the doctors might even, um, at very specialist centres, uh, take a lumbar puncture, so take some fluid from the around the brain, and that allows us to see some of the proteins that are oh. in the brain. But that gives us a kind of different puzzle pieces to allow us to put together a picture of what's happening. It's very difficult for us to ever know definitively until the person's passed because we don't yet have the science to make a totally definitive diagnosis for any kind of um, dementia, unfortunately. So what we go on is the kind of clinical puzzle. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Um, and finally, Doctor, uh, what does the future hold for you in terms of research? What are, what are you currently working on? So I think this is a very exciting area. Um, it's developing very, very quickly. And we, in speech therapy, are working on um, increasing the range of speech and language therapy interventions. I'm currently working on a really big study with um, lots of different countries. We're involving 13 countries around the world including um, we've got countries in South America. I have India involved, Australia, Canada, um, Turkey, Norway. And we're trying to work out what are the most important things for people living with PPA and their family members. So when we do research in this field, we can measure the things that are important in terms of outcome. So that when we develop therapies, we're measuring the right things. Excellent. Dr. Anna Walkmoy, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so Thank very much for so joining much us today. For me. Uh, Thank you for having me. The Take pleasure care. was all us and you. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Dr. Anna Walkmoy, who is a senior research fellow at UCL and a senior speech and language therapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Let me go straight now to our last guest um, for the show today, Miss um, Justine Tomlinson, who has been a consultant admiral nurse for community admiral nursing with Dementia UK for the last five years. She spent over 20 years in the NHS working within stroke services and advanced rehabilitation, followed by working as a staff nurse within mental health services across older persons' services. Assalamu alaikum, peace with you. Warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hello, and thank you for inviting me on this morning. Um... What does Dementia UK do? Okay, so Dementia UK is a specialist dementia nurse charity that provides dementia support for families through our Admiral Nurses. Um, the charity's Admiral Nurses, like me, um, endeavour to, to pro provide life-changing support for families affected by all forms of dementia through clinical, emotional and practical support that enables families to live more positively with dementia. Um. And in terms of the Alzheimer's disease, you know, which we have understood to be the most common form of dementia, what are the symptoms and how does, um, how do you rather these develop over time? And how does Alzheimer's impact um, have on sort of the language? Okay. Um, yeah, so Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia here in the UK. And all the symptoms do gradually develop over time. Um, it Dementia is an umbrella term for a range of different conditions which affect the function of our brains. Um, and Alzheimer's disease is one of these. And it is, as I said, the most common form. Now, symptoms are usually mild at the beginning, but can get worse over time. 
and people can experience a range of different issues, not necessarily in any order. Um, we might see problems with memory, with concentration and speech. And this can affect how people uh, engage with their social and family circles. A person with Alzheimer's may experience very slow, muddled or repetitive speech. Again, we're all individuals and an individual can have a different experience of how it affects them. For example, some people can forget about recent conversations or be constantly misplacing items that they've only just located, forgetting the names and places of people and objects or having difficulty finding the right words. So it can be a combination of things um, that affect language um, and it can be quite anxiety provoking for people when you know the right word or you can't find the right word. It can be very frustrating. Um, so it's very, very important, as the doctor said before, that if you're experiencing any of these issues, to seek out the GP and be very specific about how these issues are affecting you and they are a change for you as an individual. And with life expectancy increasing um, and people living longer, is dementia our biggest health challenge? And if so, what needs to be done to counteract it? Yeah, I do believe um, it is one of our biggest health challenges. And health promotion is actually really, really important from a very young age. Um, and to counteract um, anything that affects our health and well-being, it has to be around education and awareness. Um, the all-important looking after our body, which includes our brain, eating well, um, supporting access to healthy food for everyone, um, and keeping control of our weight and keeping, keeping ourselves cognitively stimulated is really, really important. Um, at Dementia UK, we have a specialist helpline where Admiral nurses um, are there to take anybody's call. It's a free phone number. And we have a specialist closer to home um, service which can be accessed through the Dementia UK website. And all of these messages are on the Dementia UK website um, and they're free for anybody to access and share. Um, but I think it's really, really important that we talk about dementia, we share our experiences and we reach out to local support um, and guidance in our local areas. Um, so we can be as informed as possible um, and we have open, honest conversations with our GPs about the worries and concerns or the information that we need about however it's affecting us and I think that's very, very important. Thank you so much, Justine. It's been a pleasure speaking with you this morning and um, hopefully we can speak with you again in the near future. Oh, definitely. That would be lovely. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you so much, Miss Justine Tomlinson, Consultant and Admiral, uh, Admiral Nurse for Community Admiral Nursing with Dementia UK for the last five years. Um, and it's always a pleasure to have, you know, uh, guests on the show who can certainly help us understand these very interesting and um, uh, very um, thought-provoking um, segments and topics um, which will 
allow us to, um, you know, in essence, spread the word to those people that perhaps haven't um, given, you know, topics a second, a second thought. Um, but in terms of the Islamic angle or the Islamic perspective, um, you know, the Holy Quran over fourteen hundred years ago clearly stated the facts about neurodegenerative diseases, where dementia is the common theme in unprecedented detail. And the Holy Quran states in chapter 16, verse 71, that Allah creates you, then he causes you to die. And there are some among you who reach the age of senility, with the result that they lose all knowledge after having gained it. And in a separate place, the Holy Quran states, we have delivered you as a child, so that afterwards you may reach your age of full maturity. And there are those among you who die, and there are others among you who are made to recede to the age of senility, with the result that they know nothing after having had knowledge. That's chapter 2, verse 6. So, in essence, what we understand here is that the the angle of approach which Islam has taken is one of acknowledging that there are um, these uh, uh, degenerative sort of diseases um, and now with the, with the sheer grace uh, mercy of Allah where science has progressed to what it has done so you know we're able to uh, further understand these diseases in great detail you know in a separate place in the Holy Quran it states surely after hardship there is relief um, and it promotes his message once again in the immediate next verse in which it states indeed with every hardship there is relief so Allah promises that you know indeed with every hardship there is relief and he repeats it to emphasize the message um, and this word the word of relief is also used in plural form this implies that relief is always twice as powerful as difficulties or suffering and therefore we should remember that the situations we are in will not last forever and that no matter how trying the times may be hardship can never overwhelm the blessings of Allah the Almighty um, in a separate place Allah the Almighty states but they plan and, and Allah plans and Allah is the best of planners as in chapter 8 verse 30 so effectively we're acknowledging and accepting that we cannot control everything um, and we cannot uh, at points you know manage anxiety but this can also be made easier by bearing in mind that God has a greater plan and that he knows what is best for all of us in a saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam in the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him it's reported that he stated that God has not created a disease without curating a cure for it um, and so this really provides the rationale to do research and so you know priority to find um, a form of a cure for, you know, dementias um, in order to prevent its um, incidence at the same time and to maintain really and enhance the quality of life um, of its sufferers. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and whom be peace, had a great compassion for mankind and he said, and I quote, sympathy for all mankind is a moral obligation and a duty. Religion is no religion which does not inculcate sympathy, nor does that man deserve to be called a man who does not have sympathy in him. And the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Hazrat Mizam Musur Allah's helper, on numerous occasions has he stated and stressed the importance of treating our fellow human beings 
with the love and patience, especially those who are suffering from an affliction. At the International Conference of the Charity Humanity First, His Holiness said, Irrespective of the cause of the suffering, if we claim to be true Muslims, it is our obligation and paramount duty to assist all people who are facing difficulties and to strive to alleviate their pain and distress. Helping others and acts of altruism have a lasting impression upon our minds as they unleash emotions of happiness and contentment. Helping others imbues many positive emotions in us. In fact, Islam considers serving humanity a form of worship of Allah the Almighty. So, in essence, and to summarize, it's really important that we as a society um, are educated about these syndromes like dementia and the impact that they have on people's lives. And we also need to be aware of how we can make informed lifestyle choices on a personal level to better combat dementia as well as look upon the the government and the policymakers to do their part in assisting, such as reducing the levels of harmful air pollution. And not only that, but we also need to strive to find a cure for this incurable disease. And the Holy Quran is a complete guidance for mankind. It's a pure casket knowledge and its verses advocate the acquisition of knowledge and undertaking research as we previously quoted and so it's I think a duty of all of us to really make sure that moving forward we bear these for at least for the Muslims these principles of making sure that we look after those people that are suffering from any form of affliction um, and to really you know make the progression that we have done so and to continue with the progression um, to certainly find a a cure for this disease. That brings us to the end of today's programme. It's been an absolute pleasure um, presenting um, with yourself, Brother Daniel, and with brother, uh, the other Brother Daniel, two Daniels, and a huge thanks to our listeners who have been with us from 7 o'clock all the way to 9 o'clock. And a huge thanks to our guests who shared their expertise and helped us understand these segments in greater detail. And lastly, um, but not leastly, our research team, our production team. A thanks to our producer, Sarah Ekman, the researchers, Faisal Mansour, Ruksan Nasir, Harun, and our tech department. For tomorrow's programme, they'll be talking about... Cannabis, an unstoppable war, and why it's it's so much so prevalent as we even we discussed this morning. Actually, cannabis, cannabis being the um, most used drug between the eleven to fifteen year olds, and uh, the various other topics which they will also be discussing. But from all of us here, uh, may the peace and blessing of Allah be upon you all, and we'll meet again next Monday from seven o'clock all the way to nine o'clock. <laughs>